If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Last week, we began a new sermon series entitled The Advance of the Gospel. And, and that's going to be our focus as we study and work our way through this book of Acts. And the key verse which provides us with the outline of the book of Acts, as well as tells us how the gospel actually goes about being advanced, is found in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. And I challenge the first service, those who were in the first service this morning, with this same challenge that I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask all of you in this room, you're part of our church family, you're regularly attending here, I want you to make verse 8 a, a something that you are willing to try to commit to memory. It, it, it's a verse in the Bible that it, our Awana kids do this all the time. They, they memorize scripture and then they report it. I want to encourage you, all of my adults, all the kids, everyone here, make Acts chapter 1 verse 8 a, a, a verse that you will commit to memory because here's why it's important. It gives the full outline of what the book of Acts is all about. If you ever want to know what Acts is about and how it flows, you can go to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It tells you everything about how the whole book is going to flow right there. But it also tells you what we looked at last week. It tells you the power that allows for it to happen. It tells you that the Holy Spirit is going to come to these disciples and that the Holy Spirit will come in your life and empower you to take the gospel. And it tells you exactly that. You are to be witnesses. That's how the, that's how the good news of the gospel spreads. It is from folks just like you and me being empowered by the Holy Spirit, being witnesses of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it tells us where we're to go, to the ends of the world. We're to, to go everywhere. We're to go to Maine. We're to go to Guatemala. We're to go to Africa. We're to go anywhere the Lord sends us through the power of the Holy Spirit communicating the witness of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. That's why this verse is so important, and I just want to challenge you to commit it to memory so that when we talk about it, you'll be able to, yep, I know exactly where that is, and I know exactly what it says. So that verse is such an incredibly important one because it sends the disciples out, but I want you to notice what takes place back up in verses 4 and 5. Because back up in verses 4 and 5, before Jesus gives this, this commission for worldwide witness, Jesus had already told his disciples up in verses 4 and 5 to stay in Jerusalem. Now, in verse 8, he tells them that you're going to go when the Holy Spirit comes. But until that time, I want you to stay in Jerusalem and I want you to wait on the promise of the Father when he will send the Spirit. To be, you will be baptized in the Spirit. I don't know about you, but that makes me fidget. I, I, I don't, that's, that's not my favorite thing to have someone say to me. I'm not a big fan of waiting. Let me, let me put, waiting is not my forte. I don't prefer it. Patience is not something that I was naturally blessed with. In fact, this week I found myself um, at a certain intersection that I travel through quite often, and um, I found myself at that intersection, and as you might imagine, it was a red light. There was no one behind me. There was no one coming from either of the opposite directions. There was no one sitting, looking in the other direction, coming toward me, and yet here I sat at a red light. And I thought to myself, why is this purposeless thing in my life? It is the bane of my existence to sit here and think about this red light and why, why I was gunning my engine. I was ready to go. I was like, Lord, would you please just let, I've got some place to be. Could you please just give me the green light? Is that, is that just me? Is there anyone else out there that kind of has that same, 
You know, honestly, there are many points in my life where I could say that is a description of how I've been. There's something clearly out in front of me that I want to see accomplished, something that I believe God has laid out in front of me to see accomplished and to use me in the process of doing it, and yet God has brought me to a point where it's a standstill. There's a point where there's a red light. There's a stop sign there. And, and, and I think eventually, you know, many of us in those cases, he's laid out for us in our lives things that he wants us to do, but we find ourselves sort of at that standstill. That actually happens a lot, and I think many times God brings us to those places intentionally. He brings us to points where we're at a stoplight, we're at a standstill for a purpose. You know, we, we see that actually happen a number of times in Scripture. I won't point you to every one of them, but I want to give you a couple of examples. The first one, Dan Duncan was great at pointing this out. He says, in the book of Exodus, after leaving Egypt, you'll recall that the Israelites didn't go directly to the promised land. Rather, God led them south down to Mount Sinai, where they received the law, and they built the tabernacle. So it wasn't a direct shot. It happened again in the book of Joshua, if you'll recall. After, after crossing the Jordan River, rather than immediately marching against Jericho and conquering the Canaanites, you recall that God told the Israelites to wait in Gilgal where they observed the Passover. They, they remembered what God had done for them. They observed the Passover, and they circumcised all of those who had been born in the wilderness. You see, sometimes God brings about times of delay, times of of stillness in our lives, even though we know where we're supposed to go, he stops us. He brings us to a red light. I actually believe that's what's happening and what we'll see occur here at the end of Acts chapter 1, the second half of this chapter, because it shows us something along those same lines. The Lord promised the gift of the Holy Spirit that would empower his disciples to go into all the world with this, with this wonderful message of the gospel as they were witnesses to it. They were going to go throughout their homeland. They were going to travel outside the, the bounds of Israel into the nations around them and elder, ultimately to the entire world. But for the moment, Jesus said in verse 4, wait. For the moment, stay there in Jerusalem. Now, we know that there was a 10-day period here from the time that Jesus was resurrected to the time that he ascended to the Father. There's a 40-day period there. And then we know that the day of Pentecost came 50 days after Passover, so there's a 10-day window. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, that 10-day window in which the disciples stayed in Jerusalem and waited on the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we examine what they did, I want us to think through our own lives, what is it that I can learn from based upon what the disciples do what can I learn about how I am to live when I am waiting on the green light of God to open me up to what he wants me to do? So let's begin picking up there. I want to read verse 8 for you again as you prepare to memorize this for yourself. But Jesus says this to his disciples, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men by them stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go up into heaven. 
Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they had been staying. Peter, stay, and then this was who was there. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days... Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. He said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, Parenthetically, Luke says this, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of all, and all of his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. And then he records what Peter goes on to say, For it is written in the, Psalm, in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, whose surname Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for this word. Now, I pray that you would help us to give us the, the wisdom that we need and the understanding that we need from your Holy Spirit to understand this word and to apply it appropriately to our lives. I ask this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. So as we're studying this passage, I want us to ask ourselves this question, and that is, what what are we to do while we wait on God's green light in our lives? What are we to do while we wait on God to give us the green light in our lives? And the first thing that I would point out to you, based upon what we've read, is just simply this. The first point on your outline is this. When you're, while you're waiting on God's green light, don't be passive or wasteful. Don't be passive and wasteful. Consider what we learned from this passage. Luke tells us that Jesus' disciples were all together, and they were on the Mount of Olives, which is, a, 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 according to verse 12, we see that that's where they were, and they were all on this little mountain range, this ridge east of, of the uh, this old city of Jerusalem. And it was there that Jesus delivered his final words there in verse 8. And then, and then Luke tells us there in verse 9 that having said those things when his disciples watched, Jesus was taken up from them in a cloud out of their sight. Now, can you just imagine that? Jesus is, is there, and he's speaking, and his disciples surround him, and then suddenly he's gone. My guess is you could have heard a pin drop. I have a hard time believing that anybody could, 
say anything, even Peter. They're standing there. They're, they're trying to process what it was Jesus had just said to them about the being filled with the Holy Spirit and being witnesses to the entire world, really, even to the Samaritans. We don't even like them. We don't even like the Gentiles. And what, is, what does he mean by all that? And then suddenly, Jesus is gone. My guess is it was, it was amazing, uh, mesmerizing, scary moment for them that they stood there staring. Where did he go? He was just here. What is this cloud? Where did the cloud go? Is, is, he, he's, is he coming back? What, what happens next? Now, I want you to know, I'm not being critical of the disciples at all. I would imagine had I been there, my reaction would have been just as amazed, just as fearful. So would yours. Because what they witnessed was an amazing moment. And, and, and I would have likely been just as paralyzed by wonder and amazement as they were. But listen, that paralysis could not go on forever. In fact, Luke tells us that there were two men there dressed in white, which is his way of describing two angels who were there. And, and they suddenly broke the silence of the moment. And they asked this question in verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? And then they say this, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, let me tell you, that's a very important statement. And it tells us a couple of things very quickly that I want you to meet. Number one, it tells us that, you know, Jesus had been appearing to his disciples in those 40 days after his resurrection, before he ascended, he had been appearing to his disciples on and off again. You see that up in verse three. And the gospels tell us that Jesus had been in there with them and he'd been out away from them and he'd been back in there with them and he was out away from them. What, what though that these angels say here about his leaving, it gave these disciples an understanding that this leaving was, was, was more permanent. They, they shouldn't expect Jesus to be coming back and reappearing and disappearing anymore. As a matter of fact, he had just provided them with his ascension, a visible demonstration that he would not be continuing to return and disappear. So that's the first thing. There's a finality to this moment. But then secondly, there's hope in this moment because the angel says, but look, he's going away, but he's coming back in the same manner in which you just saw him go. So though you can't expect him to continue to come and go all the time, look, it's not without hope. He will return again. Now, that's, that's the second part, and we could focus on that, and I'd love to, but I want you to notice the first question because it's the first question I want us to zero in on. They ask, they ask, they ask these men, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heavens? In other words, why are you just standing there with your mouth open looking at that which you see has occurred? You can't stay here. Remember what you were told to do. You were told to go back to Jerusalem and stay there. You can't remain paralyzed here at what you've seen. You've got to go back there. And so, listen, you can't just waste your time in this moment. You've got to go and when, in the passive nature of just staring. You've got to go back, and there is work and there's preparation that needs to be done for that which is about to happen. 
I love what John Stott has written about this. He assesses the situation this way. He says, The angels admonished the disciples, communicating to them that the vision that they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven, which was received, which had just received Jesus, but it was to be outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know it's the same for us. It's exactly the same for us. The angel's message to the disciples is still applicable to the church today. You see, we find ourselves waiting for that which the angels have promised. You see, the angel said he was going to come in like manner. We are waiting for that as the church. We are waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. But as we wait, we are not to stand here as stargazers, standing up and just looking in the sky and just waiting for him to show up. No, we are to be people who are looking at the world around us, and we are to be going into that world around us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, taking the good news of the gospel to them. Why? Because there's a lost and a dying world around us a world that needs to hear the message of the good news of the kingdom of God. And that is why we must go. We cannot be passive. We cannot just hang out and just sort of wait. No, we are to be going. Now, while we wait, though, we wait on God's green light. God has not, God has not sent the disciples yet, so they had to learn not to be passive and wasteful of the time that they have. You and I have to learn the same thing. In fact, I would say the opposite must be the case. We must not be passive, and we must not be wasteful. Instead, we must be active and productive. And even there, though, we need to gain clarity, which leads me to the next lesson that I think we learned from this passage today. You see, based on what we see the disciples do as they obediently waited for God's promise to be fulfilled, what we learn is that as we wait for God's green light, we must, notice the second point there on your outline, we must pray and study God's Word. We must pray and study God's word. Notice, notice the, that, that following the admonishment of the angels, these disciples, they go back to Jerusalem, which is what Christ had told them to do. And, and then they get there, they go back to the upper room, which is likely the same upper room that they were in where they celebrated the Passover together with Jesus. It, it, many have suggested that this is at the home of John Mark's house and that this is the upper room where they were also at during, on the day of Pentecost when, this, when the Spirit came. And so this was a common location for them to gather and, and Luke tells us who all was there, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. And in fact, all 11 disciples minus Judas Iscariot were there. And then, and then also we see that, that along with them, had Jesus' mother was there, along with some other women who had traveled with her, as well as Jesus' own brothers. And I just want you to know, this, this made for a pretty uh, diverse group of people. The, 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 the folks that traveled the earth with Jesus when he was here during his three years of ministry on the earth was a fairly diverse and disparate group. In fact, among them, you would find all kinds of mixtures of professions and personalities. Some were strong-willed. Some were by nature skeptical people. Some were just simply not the most compliant folks that you had ever come across. There were fishermen. There was one that was a tax collector who was employed by the Romans. And then there was also Simon the Zealot who was so zealous for the freedom and the independence of... I just always wondered, I wonder did Jesus ever group them up to go out two by two, those two guys. <laughs> Matthew and Simon. Yeah, that's a great... Let's, let's, let's put those two together. What I, what, the point that I'm making is, is they were a very diverse group and a very, very different in many respects... But here's something important. Notice what Luke says in verse 14. 
He says that when this very disparate and diverse group got together in the upper room, you know what they did? They all continued with one accord in prayer. Very different people who came together unified for the purpose of prayer. Didn't mean they lost their personalities. Didn't mean that they, lost, they gave up their professions as a fact that, I mean, that they, they didn't have those things in their background. No, they're still very different people, but they came together for the central purpose of prayer. I love what Warren Wearsby observes about this. Listen to what he writes. He says, in light of how diverse this group was, how easy would it have been for someone to bring division? The members of the Lord's family might have claimed special recognition. Or Peter could have been criticized for his cowardly denial of the Savior. Or perhaps Peter might have blamed John because it was John who brought him into the high priest's house to begin with. John might well have reminded the others that he had faithfully stood at the cross and had even been chosen by the Savior to care for his mother. But Wearsby points out there was none of this. In fact, nobody was even arguing over a, a, who among them was the greatest. You remember, that's what they kept doing when before Jesus was crucified. They kept trying to figure out who was going to get the prominent seat at the table. None of that is occurring here. They are unified. They're still very diverse, but they're unified together. And Luke tells us that they all continued with one accord in prayer. Literally, they were unified and focused on the same purpose. What was that purpose? Well, it was the purpose of praying. Praying for what? Well, I think they were praying for what Jesus had promised was going to come. Back up in verse 5, he says, You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then according to verse 8, he says, You're going to be empowered by the Spirit when you go and become my witnesses. I believe that when they got together to pray, they prayed for the purpose, Lord, let your Spirit fall. Let it come upon us. Give us the power we need to go do what it is that you have prepared us to do. Now, some might say, well, why? Why would the disciples find themselves together for the unified purpose of praying for that which God had already said was going to happen? I mean, does that, is it really needed for us to get together and pray for that that Jesus says he's going to already do? Isn't that a little superfluous for us to, to pray for that? I would suggest that it is the farthest thing from superfluous in our life to ever pray for the will of God to come about in our lives. In fact, I would tell you this. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what did he say? He said, pray this prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we'll just stop right there for a second, and we already know what the Scriptures declare. We, we know that that is exactly what will ultimately happen on earth. Listen, as Paul writes, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that it is God's will for His will to be done on earth. All, he, all we have to do is pray for that will to accomplish. We are praying for something that God has already said is going to happen. Tell you when else it happens. It happens in the final words of the book of Revelation. In the very last words of Revelation, Jesus says, surely I come quickly. And what does John do? John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. He prays immediately after Jesus makes the declaration of what's going to happen. John prays about it. So let me just tell you right up front, to, to enter into unified, concerted, one accord prayer 
asking for God to do what he has already said he's going to do, that is a function of the church when it comes together that ought to happen more often, and it ought to be that which explains who we are as we wait on the green light of God to come into our lives. It's not superfluous. In fact, I love what Derek Thomas has written. He says, it is always God's method to drive us into a corner to pray for the very blessings he intends to give to us. Another puts it this way. He says, God's promises should motivate us to pray and to persist in prayer until they are reality because we know that he will fulfill his word. And you know what that, you know what that means? Whenever we get together and we pray for that, you know what it is? A, transparently, it is a declaration that we recognize God is sovereign in our life. It is a declaration of recognizing that we're dependent upon him. We are asking him to do what he's already promised, and by doing that, we're saying, look, we're completely dependent upon that. And we declare that dependence. And, and we keep ourselves focused on the most important things. And we stay connected to one another in the process. So what we see here, I believe, is a beautiful picture of the early church on its knees, waiting for God, looking for his provision and what he's promised. But it was not only prayer that the disciples devoted themselves to. It also becomes evident that they searched the scriptures together. Now, how do I get that? Well, notice what happens next. According to verse 15, in those days, in those days in which they remained in prayer with one another, concerted effort, asking God to do what he had promised to do, Peter stands up and says, um, we need to address something that has happened among our ranks that had heretofore not been addressed. And Peter's words make it evident that he had become convinced that there was an issue dealing with Judas and his defection from the 12 that, that needed to be addressed. And, and it also became, for, for Peter, something that he recognized that Judas's betrayal, which I'm sure all the other 11 were still trying to scratch their head and get their minds around, he began to recognize exactly what the Scriptures had said, that Judas was the fulfillment of Scripture. Notice what he says in verse 16. He says, men and brethren, this Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke, before the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he's referring to his betrayal of Christ there. Now, you do not get a reference here specifically. Peter doesn't say where that, that reference is, but, but, but Jesus did. In John chapter 13, verse 18, Jesus referred to Psalm 41, verse 9, where he said, He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That comes from Psalm 41, verse 9. It was written by David who was writing about his friend and his counselor, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel had, had betrayed David. And David writes this about him, but Jesus takes what David wrote, brings it forward and says, that which Ahithophel did way back then, a thousand years earlier, was really only a precursor of an even more insidious betrayal that took place with Judas at his own table. Peter is able to understand that after the resurrection and the ascension, and he stands up to explain that to all in the room. They went back to the Scriptures to understand what was happening in the present. Can I just say to you that that's exactly how the Bible ought to be read? It's not some old book that stands back over there with dust on it in the corner that we read occasionally when we want to find a word of encouragement, but it actually is that which, by God's design, gives us an understanding of that which happens in our lives on a daily basis if we will give attention to it. Peter obviously did that here. Now, I need to hurry, but let me just also say, he also quotes from Psalm 69, verse 25. 
And in Psalm 69, verse 25, he talks really about that field of blood. And I'll let you chase down the differences between what is written there, really in parentheses by Luke, to explain what occurred after Judas had hanged himself. And it's very graphic, but after he hanged himself in this field that had been bought with the 30 pieces of silver that he had thrown back into the treasury, but the, the Jewish leaders would not accept it back in the treasury. So according to Matthew chapter 27, they bought a field where people could be buried. Judas went out and hanged himself in that field. And then his body did exactly what dead bodies do when they're hung outside in the sun. And eventually it was either the rope broke or the limb broke and his body fell. And when it did, it described as exactly as Luke says, that his, his, his body burst open and his, his entrails gushed out. And it became known as the field of blood. The reason that Luke writes that in parentheses is so that we'll understand what happened. The disciples didn't need that information. They knew what had occurred. Peter simply interpreted it in light of what Psalm 69 verse 25 said, let his dwelling, let this man's Judas's dwelling be desolate and let no one live in it. And then, and then you also see what happened as a result of the replacing. Psalm 109 verse 8, Peter, Peter also is studying his scriptures and he brings it up and he says, let another take his office. And he uses that as the reasoning for why they needed to replace Judas with another disciple, another apostle. And we'll come back to that in just a moment, but here's what I want you to note. And that is, this is the lesson that we need to understand is that during this time of waiting, during this time when they were waiting on the green light of God to come into their life and the Spirit to come, they spent time in a concerted effort of praying and they spent time studying the Word. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly how it ought to be in our life. As we wait on God to open the floodgates as we sang about this morning, in our own lives, we need to be people who are concertedly praying together and studying our Scripture. That's exactly who we need to be. We not need to be passive and wasteful of our time. We need to be those who are prayerful and diligent to study God's word. And that leads me to the third thing that we need to see. Based upon what we see them do next, we recognize that as we wait on God's green light, we need to pursue the Lord's will. We need to pursue the Lord's will. That's your third point there. I mentioned Psalm 108, 109 verse 8 as the biblical basis for finding a replacement for Judas Iscariot. And I want you to know that's exactly what they did. You, you see there that they, they determined the criteria and then they went and, and asked the Lord to, to reveal to them who his desire for the replacement for Judas would be and then they cast lots and, and the lot fell upon Matthias. Let me just say to you, there have been plenty who have written uh, a lot of material uh, saying that the disciples stepped out of line by doing this, that, that Jesus had clearly told them that they were to wait, but Peter being Peter impetuous, decided that waiting was not what he wanted to do, so he pushed forward in doing something that, that the Scriptures had not clearly called for and that the Holy Spirit would be the one to give the ultimate guidance to. And since he had not come, they should have waited. And they use a lot of different arguments to describe that, and some of them are, are, are compelling. Um, they, they, they talk about how uh, it should have, obviously, instead of Matthias, it should have been Paul that would have been the, the 12th apostle. And he obviously is the one that, that the scriptures give a lot of time and, and, and effort. And Luke describes a, a tremendous amount of his uh, ministry to us. And time doesn't permit me to, to go into all those various arguments. I'm just going to simply give you my perspective on it and tell you some of the main reasons why I believe that the disciples were not out of the will of God and what they did here. 
First one, I, I, I love what John Stott has said. He makes the excellent point that since we're in the book of Acts, if what, they had, if, if what the disciples had done were out of the will of God, well, Luke never gives us any hint as to a mistake being made in all of the rest of what he writes in spite of the fact that Paul was a personal hero for Luke. So you would have expected there to be something in the book of Acts written with regard to the choice of Matthias and not, not Paul if there was a mistake that was made. The second thing I would point to you is, is J.M. Boyce has really eloquently pointed out. He says, since the disciples had just been praying and studying the Scriptures, well, shouldn't we assume that they were led by the Holy Spirit to seek a qualified person to fill the place of leadership? What had they been doing the previous 10 days? They'd been together praying and studying the Scriptures. I think it's very appropriate for us to think that the, it was the Spirit of God, even though He had not come in the fullest power, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, but still was there leading them in that. And then finally, I would just say this. The Lord chose 12 disciples who would become the 12 apostles. And in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus gave them an insight as to what they would be doing in eternity. He says, there, he says, there's truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so the 12 disciples become the 12 apostles who end up sitting on 12 thrones and judging the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. However, Scripture indicates that Paul was a, was a specific apostle to the Gentiles. You find that in Acts, 9, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, multiple times in Romans and also Galatians and even in Ephesians. Furthermore, I would just say this, based upon what is written there in verse 22, that the person who was chosen to replace Judas must have been with Jesus from the time of his baptism until the point when Jesus ascended into heaven. Well, Paul could not fulfill that. He was not with Jesus at those moments. Matthias was. So what I believe is this. I believe that because these men prayed and because they sought the wisdom and the teaching of the Scriptures and because they were united together for the purpose of waiting on the day when the Holy Spirit would come, I believe that what they did was they pursued the Lord's will, which, by the way, you read when they prayed, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry an apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. He showed them his will. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly, though, what we ought to do. I'm not suggesting that we go around casting lots. We now have the Holy Spirit who's come into our lives to give us wisdom and direction. But we do pursue what the Lord's will for our lives is. Do we pursue it in the big things? Absolutely. But I would suggest that you need to pursue it in the small things. When you are sitting there at life's red light, waiting to go forward, wanting to go into that which God has laid out in front of you, it's not up for us to be passive and to waste our time at that moment. It's not up for us to, to just lollygag around and, and, and idle. No, we are to be engaged in, in good things of prayer, Bible study, and pursuing the will of God. And all of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning is this. As we wait for God's green light, rather than passively wasting our time in idleness, we must engage in purposeful prayer, study His Word, 
and pursue his will. Let me ask you, does that describe you? Because maybe you're there right now. Maybe you want to press that gas pedal so bad you can't stand it, but God, for whatever reason, has got you in a holding pattern. Does this describe the way that you're handling that at the moment? Listen, all of us in this room are waiting on one thing, I know. We're waiting on the return of Christ that the angels talked about back there in verse 9. All of us as a church are waiting on the return of Jesus, which, by the way, Paul goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. He will, he will return in like manner to the way that he left, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Let me ask you this. As you wait for that glorious day, can it be said of you that you're not spending your time idly around just stargazing, but that you're actively involved in witnessing and taking the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world because that is what we are designed to do? Are you concerting your effort with other believers in prayer, asking for God to accomplish the very things that he has said that he's going to accomplish? Are you spending time in his word, studying it for yourself, and using it as the means by which you are able to interpret that which is happening in your life today? It's not just a word for them back then. It is a word for us today. And are you using the Bible in that way and honoring God through that? And are you seeking his will? Listen, all of us may find ourselves in the stoplights of life, but there are things that we can do whenever we are waiting on the green light to occur. And then let me conclude this way. We've talked a lot about waiting, and we've talked a lot about stop signs, and we've talked a lot about red lights. But I would be remiss this morning if I didn't say this to you, that as it pertains to matters of faith and as it pertains to salvation, God always calls on people to move and not delay. You will never find a red light with God as it pertains to salvation. God always calls his people to move. The Bible tells us to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. The writer of Psalms and the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen, today is the day of salvation. And there is no more important issue that faces any of us today than that. There are many important things that many of you in this room are facing. Maybe decisions this week, things that are going to impact your life from now on. I get it. But I want you to know, none of those decisions are more essential than what will you do with Jesus. That question is the most important question that you will ever answer. The question is, have you trusted him? Is he your savior? Is he Lord of your life? If not, then I pray that you will not delay in making him the Lord and Savior of your life. I pray that you will not remain idle this morning, that you will run to Jesus and be saved because he is your only hope. He's my only hope. He is the hope of the world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day. I thank you for these words. I thank you for this this refocusing of, of that which we need to know and need to hear. Because, Father, the, the reality is all of us need to be reminded of these truths and, and that how they impact the way that we live and the way that we respond. So I pray that you would cause us to do that today, allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to motivate us and to guide us. 
We will thank you for all that you will do, and I praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen.